The book of Romans, we've been in it for a while. It's been our privilege to focus on it, to see how Paul very logically lays out the truths of the gospel. And as we take up this section of Romans 12, we've already seen Paul arguing that based on the various mercies of God unfolded earlier, that our bodies are to be given as a living sacrifice to God and our minds are to be transformed by God the Holy Spirit. And once he lays that down, then he begins to show various specifics of the unfolding of this mind transformed. Humility, self-denying love to the church, self-denying love to our enemies, and submission to the government, which is where we have been for the past uh, three weeks. In our introductory study, we saw how God uses various civil governments down through history. We've seen those three areas of limited government in the family, the church, and the civil government. We've seen that God is absolute over each of these spheres. Then as we came to the paragraph itself in our first study here two weeks ago, the reality of submission to the civil government, and then we looked at the reasons and saw the first because of the divine institution of the civil government. Then last week we moved ahead to look at two more reasons for submission, the close connection with the civil government, that civil governor is God's diaconal servant, God's avenging servant, and God's public or political servant. Then we saw the usefulness of civil government. God uses it to push away evil and to uh, encourage righteousness uh, and order and peace. So this morning, we take up one more reason and then consider the relationship, though the outline will fit us this morning. We have seen that when Paul writes, there is a very real context. Uh, there are these dangers of rebellion. It's going to be just a few years, and the first Jewish-Roman war is going to begin. Paul writing 57 A.D., not all rebellions go well. The Jewish rebellion ended uh, here on the top of Masada with the last rebel Jews committing suicide so that they do not come into the hands of the Romans. We think of this period of time, Nero ruled for 14 years from 54 to 68 A.D., and then the three Roman rulers that came after Nero each ruled for less than a year. Many of us may not know, I had forgotten, that the Senate condemned Nero to die a slave's death, to say that he was to be crucified like a slave, and in the process he was to be whipped. And instead of suffering that, he took his own life. This morning, our text in verse 5 mentions conscience, but also for the sake of conscience. This is the faculty of self-judgment. And we may visualize the conscience as something of a courtroom. And instead of having a defense attorney and a prosecuting attorney, we're going to have in our own inner courtroom uh, the uh, conflicting thoughts accuse or excusing us in that faculty of self-judgment. Every person on the planet has a little courtroom in their brain called the conscience, Todd Friel. We see from this that the Bible is not the only place that speaks of conscience. And I'm not limiting myself to believers. I'm intentionally reaching out to see that this is observed as a part of humanity. 
There is a higher court than courts of justice, and that is the court of conscience. It supersedes all other courts. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. A guilty conscience never feels secure. A clear conscience is a good pillow. The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience. Everybody else may say this, but if your conscience says that, conscience is a thousand witnesses. Keep conscience clear, then never fear. Labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. The moral sense or conscience is as much a part of man as his leg or arm. It is given to all in a stronger or weaker degree. It may be strengthened by exercise. Never do anything against conscience, even if the state demands it. About morals, I know only that what is moral is what you feel good about after, and what is immoral is what you feel bad about after. Quite a range of individuals that are speaking of the reality of conscience. And to me, it is very interesting that the ancient Greeks had this word for conscience and they were using conscience some four or five hundred years before the gospel is going to break out through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Euripides, a classic Athenian playwright, composed tragedies focusing on human suffering. He spoke of conscience as the ability to know the moral fault because of being in the wrong. One of his characters, Orestes, has self-knowledge of murder, and another character, Jason, has self-knowledge of his unfaithfulness to his wife. Conscience is knowing not a moral fault in someone else, but a self-knowledge of one's being at fault, and this is clearly the sense of conscience that has come down to us through the ages. Now, I mention this because it used to be that evolutionists would tell us that we need to get rid of our sense of shame, we need to get rid of our remaining moral sense, this faculty of judgment is some kind of evolutionary hangover that you need to get rid of because there is no standard of right and wrong. But I'm very glad that there is a broader movement, well, not so much to say that conscience is, is something that has been developed in man, but that's what they're, they're recognizing conscience is here. It's almost like they're listening to Jefferson, that it's as plainly a part of man as a man's leg or his arm. And the final thing I want to show you this morning is consider this as a uh, uh, shelves of books, various uh, four different bookshelves. And regarding the human, if you open up one little cell and unpack all of the DA information in any one of us as humans, you're going to find that there are nearly a hundred encyclopedias of information that is all ordered and packed and fixed in our DNA. And if you want to come over here to the top right, there are some begonias that would fill 43 volumes of information, of data that's packed into that flower's DNA. Well, with that, let's come to our study proper this morning and let's look at this fourth reason. 
Roman numeral one, a fourth reason for submission to the civil government because of the believer's commitment to do the right thing before God. First of all, A, what is the connection of necessity in verse 5a? Verse 5 begins, therefore one must be in subjection. The New American Standard puts it, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection. And what is being underscored here is that Paul is saying that I'm looking back on what I already said in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, and I'm saying that based on the truth of those things, we must be in subjection, we must be submissive to the civil government. It, it, there in the latter part of verse 1, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. If you understand that God has instituted the various civil governments, then you're going to have a conscience issue if you go against God. So don't worry about just being punished, but have this sense of what Linsky calls an inner necessity. There's the outer necessity. If I don't obey, then the government can put pain on me. But there is also an inner necessity that I'm just looking, I'm not even worried about the government. But I am concerned about doing the right thing before God. Calvin wrote something to the effect that if the civil government was disarmed, the sword was taken out of his hand, and there's nothing that he could do to touch you, just because you know that God has instituted and God has told you to be submissive, that's all you need. There is this inner necessity that I want to be submissive for the glory of God. Well, we need to look at this inner necessity a little bit this morning. We need to look at this conscience thing a bit more. So there's A, the conscience, the connection now, B, what is conscience? What is conscience? But also for the sake of conscience. Peter words it differently. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for his glory, because he wants you to. Conscience stands for the faculty of self-judgment. It's that courtroom. And in the courtroom, when you are lying on your pillow trying to go to sleep and those thoughts of the day are banging around in your mind, it's like a courtroom where there are these accusations, what you did was wrong, there are these defense, what you did is right. And sometimes there can be quite a turmoil that's going on in that courtroom. But we're going to add something. In this courtroom, there is access to the law books. What God says is right and wrong. And those things will come in and help our conscience in rendering a biblically right decision. Originally, the conscience was that faculty of self-judgment, even for the Greeks. And they would speak of a good conscience, which would be a conscience that is at peace. And then they would speak of a bad conscience. And that's where that bad conscience painfully makes itself to be felt and the trouble and the storm is known. The connection, the what, and now thirdly the see, how is conscience informed? Well, there are those law books, but there is also Romans 2 and verse 15, they show the work of the law written on their hearts, written at creation. God has stamped on each one of us a sense of right and wrong. And that's why Paul says, even that pagan, even that Gentile who doesn't have the Old Testament, 
They have stamped on their being a sense of right and wrong. And if someone gets angry, and they're so angry that they slip a knife into their loved one, then later they're going to regret it. And they're going to run that whole thing through their minds a thousand or more times. And where did that come from? God has stamped upon us as men and women, boys and girls made in the image of God. There is an absolute right. There is an absolute wrong. But the conscience can also be informed. When the accusations are going on back and forth in the courtroom of the mind, we can go to the law book, pull it down, and see this is how we're supposed to think. One illustration of this comes from 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4 and following. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and through whom we exist. You see what's going on there? Can I eat this meat that was offered to an idol? And somebody's conscience is going to say, no, because it was offered to an idol. And another Christian with an informed conscience is going to say, fooey, on this idol dedication stuff, it was dedicated to nothing. There's only one God. So give me the meat and I can eat it. And not in the slightest part. So here's a situation where someone's conscience can be misinformed and we need to open up the law books, the scriptures, and find out how our consciences can be rightly informed. And you know what Paul is doing in Romans 13, 1 to 7? He's pulling the law book off the shelf. He's opening it up and he is saying, submit to the powers that be. The powers that be are from God. And you can't find a single one that is not from God. And if you don't submit, then you're, in li you're liable to be under their wrath. But even if they didn't have a sword, you still have an obligation. You see what he's doing? He's informing the mind, the conscience of the Christian. And so we end up with the right thing to do before God is to submit and to fall into rank. The connection, what is conscience? How is conscience informed? Fourthly, D, what will a biblically directed conscience do? Therefore, one must be in subjection. Leal Morris writes, Christians obey authorities not only because of what will happen to them if they do not, but because it is right. They give positive and enthusiastic cooperation to promoting the right things the state does. Murray goes on. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and therefore to do anything out of conscience and for conscience sake is to do it from a sense of obligation to God. Paul talks about conscience. Peter talks about be submissive for the Lord's sake. Do this with God's eye on you is what Peter is saying. But then once we bring conscience into the picture, what's the balancing thought as to whether or not we should obey you or obey God? Why don't you try to be the judge of that? As for us, we must obey God rather than men. So our friends in China 
where their government is saying to them that the church is subversive to the goals of the state. And back in the 80s, when the number of Christians was rather low, they'd estimate one to three million. And now, as it's reached up over a hundred million Christians there, now they're saying, okay, we, we gotta we gotta deal with this. The church is subversive, and every church must be registered. Of course. If you register with the government, then the government has a say in who's the pastor. The government has a say on what you could believe and has a say on what you can do. And so they just say, you know what? We're just going to meet secretly. The government is telling us this is what we're going to believe, this is what we're going to do, and this is who we're going to have leading us. No, we can't have that. They obey God rather than man. The church has a head that is in heaven and not among man. E, where did your conscience come from? This amazing faculty. Some nights you probably wish you didn't have one. But in your best moments, you're really, really glad that you've got a conscience. And a conscience that at times makes you feel very, very miserable to the point that you're motivated to go to another individual and say, I'm sorry. What? What was that? I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did such and such to you. It's because... At heart, I'm a jerk that I did this. Will you please forgive me? Now, for some of us to do that, it's going to require a significant turbulence and storm going on in the conscience. The conscience is good. Where did it come from? Well, we're now told that your conscience evolved over millions and millions of years. That it's good for the social development. And so by happenstance, it just kind of happened and then somehow it got fixed in you and maybe it got a little stronger by time and chance. Now it's fixed. Now it's in us, unless we cauterize it. That's where my conscience came from. Really? This, this goes along with your notion that in one of my cells, if we could unfold all of the DNA information in there, that it would fill a hundred books the size of encyclopedias. You don't like me having faith in God? And you have faith in a flawed process? That out of chaos, order comes? The order of the beauty of all that DNA? The order comes and it just happens to get fixed in me and is in all of my cells? And then it stays there? Listen, friend, we're both having some measure of faith. Modern man can still not make an amoeba. But time and chance made man, with all of his ordered DNA library, time and chance made man with this amazing faculty that judges whether we've been right or whether we've been wrong, and now it's fixed in us. On the other hand, the Bible tells you that you are a moral creature made in the image of God. And Paul reasons with us in Romans 2 
Therefore, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges. You're a moral creature. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul reasons with man and says, man, you're a moral judge. You're capable of knowing right and wrong. You can make your judge. This one was wrong. That one was wrong. This one was right. You're capable of doing that, and you have that moral faculty because you got it from your heavenly daddy. You're made in the image of God. And that's why you have it. F. How can I get a clear conscience? How can I get a clear conscience? Think about what Paul says, the extremes of his message on the conscience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he talks about the insincerity of liars, the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They're cauterized. It's like you've gotten a red-hot brand and you put it on the organ of the conscience and you just burn down and all that is left is the smell of burning flesh and scar tissue. That, that's their conscience, but it doesn't work because they've cauterized it so many different times, it's only a mass of scar tissue. And there are some individuals who can murder their fellow man and not be troubled by it. They have scarred that conscience. But now think of the other end. The other end of the spectrum where Paul says, in Acts 23 and verse 1, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul, I think you're lying. How can you say that there is none righteous? How can you say that there is no one who has not sinned? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How can you say that everybody is a sinner and then on the other hand, you can talk about having a good conscience? Or in Acts 24, verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. How can it be true that man is a sinner and Paul can talk about having a good conscience or a clear conscience. Well, Hebrews 9 and verse 14 helps us. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he died a perfect sacrificial death so that the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ could be applied to our bad records. So the merits of Jesus Christ could be applied to our bad conscience and take away the guilt of all of our sins the sins that we did in our unconverted days, even killing Christians, if you're Paul, and then the sins of the last week, so that Paul can say, as I've confessed this, I've, as I've had the blood of Christ freshly applied to me, I can stand before you with a clear conscience. I don't know if we appreciate how significant of a statement that is. But there it is. A clear conscience is indeed a good pillow. Roman number one. 
the fourth reason why we ought to submit because we know it's the right thing to do. Roman numeral two, the relationship of citizens and the civil government, verses six and seven. First of all, A, what the civil government provides. We're in a relationship with the government. Verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. They are God's public servant attending to this very thing. They are attending to this very thing. They are continually devoted to this very thing. The same word is used in Romans 12 and verse 12. Be constant in prayer. You need a full-time government. They're always dedicated to these matters. So you see in verse 6, just as you glance at it, the first part, you do something. You pay taxes. The latter part of verse 6, the government does something. It attends to this very thing. It is God's public servant. In 1 Timothy, and what is that service? What is that very thing that they do? Well, they are to provide stability and peace for good citizens. Verse 4 of Romans 13, he is God's servant for you, your good. You're a good citizen. The civil government is for your good. First Timothy 2, we are to pray that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. I'm praying to the king, praying for the king that the king would provide a peaceful and quiet life, our confession of faith. God, the supreme Lord and king of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his glory and the public good. And to this end has armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. Peter says, governors are sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Calvin says, the civil magistrate's duty, if it be his duty to defend and safely preserve the peace of the good and resist the mischievous attempts of the wicked, This they cannot do unless they have sufficient force. What he's arguing for, if this is the order that the government is to provide, then you and I as citizens need to pay our taxes. He goes on to say, those taxes that are collected are public private, private property, Easy for me to say, after three times. It's the public property that is not to be privately wasted. So what the civil government provides, that's their part of the contract. And now, secondly, be what citizens provide, what they pay. In verse 6, you also pay taxes. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. The foundational principle of obligation. You pay for what you owe. Paul is recognizing that Nero, as bad as he is, is providing something of peace and security in the land. Therefore, we are to view ourselves as debtors to our civil government. Now, is that the first thing that comes to your mind when you start thinking of your relationship to the civil government? I owe them something. May not be the first thought that comes to our minds. We have in our community, over there some way, Chester County Prison. 
a number of individuals in there that have done bad things and they've needed to be individually collected up, tried, and put there at least for a period of time. Do you remember how our lives changed when months ago there was one prisoner that got out, an illegal alien who had murdered someone? Our lives just didn't go on. We, we, well, I'm going from here to here. Where was he last seen? No, I'm not coming to your house. Not today, not this week. That's in his realm of travels. The government works for us. And the point is that we should appreciate something of the order that is normally there and have a sense of our due. Little number two, the command to fulfill that obligation. The foundational principle, the command to fulfill that obligation, and because of this, you also pay taxes. If we did not pay our taxes, if government ceased or became too weak, then crime and disorder would so quickly overrun us that we should on our own organize some force to restrain crime and disorder and gladly pay whatever this might cost. The command to fulfill that obligation. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Thirdly, little three, the four samples of that obligation. There are taxes. Here, it seems that Jesus is speaking of the Roman tax, a tax due per head. The Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. Why is he doing that? He wants them to reach into one of their money bags and pull out a coin that already has their fingerprints on it because they're already using that coin. And whose image is on the coin? Whose inscription is on the coin? It's Caesar's. And you see what Jesus is saying. If you're going to use this coin that's got Caesar's picture on it, inscribed with words that give credit to Rome, then you are using the Roman monetary system so you are already admitting that you're in a relationship with Rome. So don't complain about paying something to Rome because you are using Roman roads, you are using Roman coins, and you are enjoying Roman peace. Pay up. And that's what Jesus did. We like paved roads. We like bridges that have been built. We like it when criminals are caught and tried and punished. We like it when wars are avoided because of strength. And all of this takes money. Pay taxes to whom taxes are due. The second sample, revenue. And it's not that it's some particular monies that went to a particular area in the first century. It's just a, it's a different word. There are different taxes. Jesus had the one tax where he said, all right, give me your coin. So everybody using this coin knows they need to pay something to Rome. But then he says to Peter regarding the temple tax, all right, go catch a fish, pull the shekel out, and give it to them for you and me. Jesus paid taxes. Taxes, revenue, respect. Earlier, this term for phobos or phobia was used three times in verse 3 and 4 as a fear of dread or terror, and now it's used in a sense of respect for the office. 
There's fourthly the sample of honor. It's a normal term that is used for honor. Ephesians 6 and verse 2, honor your father and your mother. On occasion, it can speak of a financial value. Now, we may find in this polarized political climate, somebody's over here, others are over here, that we have a hard time, perhaps, by not starting a revolution. It's about all I can do from keep, from joining someone else's rebelling. Well, it's fairly clear, isn't it, from what Paul is writing here in Romans 13, that Paul doesn't want us to be signing up for rebellion. We're to view the civil magistrate, whoever he or she happens to be, as the one that God has ordained. And though, even though Nero has a couple of warts and a couple of other faults, He's still God's diaconal servant, God's avenging servant, and God's public servant. Even though there's someone like Nero, or Galba, or Otho, that is on the throne, yet we are to pray for peace and tranquility. And that's why we pray for kings and all who are in high position. And what Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, told Israel of old as they were living in Babylon is valid for us. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So there's the relationship of citizens and the government. It gives us a framework There's that which the government is supposed to provide. And there is that which the citizen is to provide. And there's submission. Now, a word of balance. Does this mean that a Christian can never oppose his government? Well, as I've thought about it, If I were a bombardier in World War II, if I were a sniper in World War II, I would do all within my skill to take out Adolf Hitler. More so. If I were a German citizen, if I were a part of the German military. I believe there would be a point where it is right for them to take out their own top of the government. But there's a significant factor that goes into my thinking. Hitler is responsible for the deaths of between 70 and 85 million individuals. Some 24, 25 million Russians. The the 6 million Jews in the gas chamber. Horrible, horrible. And this from the man that is to be protecting people and protecting against invasion and he's doing the invasion. Just as a word of balance, there is A point. But now finally this morning, what God deserves. What God deserves. And here I'm thinking of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, living as servants of God, slaves of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And I love how Peter brings these broad principles for us. You're supposed to honor everyone. A particular agape love for the people of God. Then fear God, reverence God, and yet honor the emperor. There they are, right next to one another. 
Honor the emperor, fear God, what God deserves. And as we close this morning, let me say, first of all, little number one, God deserves our careful obedience. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We cannot be conformed to the thinking, to the character of President Biden. We cannot be conformed to the thinking, to the character of former President Trump. We as Christians are to be not conformed to the world, and we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Stuart Allett writes, We are thus continuing to learn how plainly and evidently consecration works itself out. There is nothing which a Christian can do in the same way as a non-Christian. How could he? The believer seeks to live for God's glory while the unbeliever lives for himself. Consecration is seen to be something wholesome and not something weird. The grateful believer is an obedient, law-abiding, and respectful citizen. It is in the specifics like this and not in the exuding of some mystical atmosphere considered to be spirituality, that holy living is properly seen. Our normal life is to live in submission to the powers that be. Little obedience. Little one, obedience. Little two. God alone deserves our worship. God alone deserves our worship. God is the only one in the world where we are told that we are to offer our bodies up as a living sacrifice. Well, that's quite a statement. And then we're to take our minds and have them, there's this total dedication, body and soul to our God. Psalm 62 and verse 1 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. He alone is worthy because who can forgive sins but God alone? God alone deserves my body and my mind. But there, as we honor the emperor, we must remember to fear God. And there's a huge difference in this. And God is supreme. Now, you and I need to give our bodies and our minds to our God. But I want us to think of how Jesus reasoned with us. Jesus said, show me the coin. They fumble around, you can hear the coins rattling, and they pull out a coin with their fingerprints on it. They were using it. You're going to use this coin? then you need to pay your due to Caesar in Rome because you're using his coin, his monetary system, his roads, his peace. Well, let me turn that a little bit this morning. Do you breathe God's air from God's sky? Then you're in a relationship with God. Do you live on God's earth? Do you drink God's water found on God's earth? Do you get any benefit from God's Son? Do you enjoy the beauty of a mountain scene? Or is there something nice to you about the rolling waves there at the beach? Do you get any benefit from these things that God gives you? Do you hear me right now with ears that God has caused to function? Are you able to process what those ears given by God, are you able to process that information 
because of a mind that God has given to you. Jesus said, if you use Caesar's coin, then pay your due. And I'm saying, if you live in God's world and drink his water and breathe his air, then you need to pay your due to God. You need to pay the rent. You cannot just take and take and take from Caesar with no reciprocal, with no responsibility on your part. And you can't take and take and take from God all the while denying that he even exists. And what does God want? God doesn't want a tax from you as such, but God wants a tribute where you say he exists, where you say he is your creator. He wants you to come with all of your sins and all of your supposed good works, lay them at the foot of the cross, and he wants you to believe in Jesus and walk away with his perfect righteousness. He wants you to live for his glory and not your own. Will you begin to pay the rent due to God today? Will you pay the rent of God's honor for the privilege of living in God's world? Let's pray. Father, we pray that one or more than one would find in the echo chamber of their hearts faith beginning. Amen. I believe this. I believe that God made me. I believe that I need to give my body as a sacrifice and I believe that God wants me to have my mind to be transformed by a renewing of God the Holy Spirit. I believe that God wants me to confess my sin and find full forgiveness through the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Father, do your work. Build us up as Christians and work in the hearts of those who have not yet come in faith. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, let's sing together, God 